turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And tonight we're going to look at verses 21 to 26. Tonight, we finally get out of the tunnel. Tonight, we finally get some good news. Tonight, we have a very important passage before us. It's a crucial text for understanding what it means to be a Christian. It teaches us how to have eternal life. It teaches us how to get to heaven. It teaches us how we don't need to fear death, but how at death, it's just the beginning, and it only gets better after that. If you've come in here today and you're looking for salvation, you're going to find it in this passage. And if you're a Christian here today and you've already found salvation, but you're looking for zeal, passion, and excitement in the Christian life, you're going to find it in this passage. As Christians, this text needs to be not just in our heads, but in our spiritual bloodstreams. And I hope that that will be the case tonight. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All of Romans up until this point has prepared us for this passage. And the rest of Romans is going to fill it out in greater details. The message of Romans so far, man is very bad and God is very mad. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. These three chapters have shown us that no one can be good on their own, that there is none righteous, not even one. No one can be right with God on their own, not Jew, not Gentile. We're called unrighteous and ungodly in chapter one. And then chapter two calls us something even worse. 
hypocrites. You're not only a sinner. You pretend like you're better than you actually are. You put on two different faces and your walk doesn't match your talk. And then we're absolutely pressed in, cornered, trapped in the darkness in chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. Here's Paul's conclusion up to this point. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You're bad. God's mad. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't make yourself right with God. But when the situation is the most hopeless, hope bursts onto the scene. Uh, Just when the tunnel is in the greatest darkness, and you just can't stand reading Romans anymore. You burst into the light after the tunnel, just when the the night is the darkest and the coldest. That sunrise bursts onto the horizon, filling the sky with light, And you feel its warmth. And that's what this passage is. This passage is the gospel. This passage is the good news. And it is the gospel. It is the good news in just one word. And this is the word that you should tuck away deep in your heart and take with you as you exit Broad tonight. The good news, the gospel. In a word, in Romans 3, 21 to 26, righteousness, righteousness. We can be right with God. This good news comes in this key word, which Paul uses four times in this passage, verse 21, verse 22, verse 25, and verse 26, and a, familiar, or a, a very similar word, justified, in verse 24. And so our outline today will revolve around this key word, righteousness. We're going to look at five characteristics of the righteousness of God five characteristics of the righteousness of God. I'm going to list them out for you here just so you have a heads up as to where we're headed. But if you didn't catch it, I'll repeat it later on in the sermon. First characteristic, the righteousness of God is obtained apart from good works. It is obtained apart from good works. You see that in the first part of verse 21. Secondly, the righteousness of God is revealed in the Old Testament. Second part of verse 21. Third characteristic, it is received through faith in Christ. It is received through faith in Christ, verses 22 to 23. Number four, it is given as a gift, verse 24. And then number five, it is demonstrated at the cross, verses 25 to 26. The righteousness of God is obtained apart from good works, 
It is revealed in the Old Testament. It is received through faith in Christ. It is given as a gift. It is demonstrated at the cross. First, it is obtained apart from good works. Verse 21, but now. Stop right there because we already have some good news. Notice the contrast, the glorious contrast to everything that we've been reading about. But God's wrath is revealed. But you're a sinner. You're a hypocrite. And you're deserving of God's wrath. But, and more specifically, verse 20, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But you can be justified. You can be right with God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Apart from the law. I have that underlined in my Bible. There's a lot of happy phrases and happy words in this passage. Got grace, got gift, redemption. But I'd argue that the happiest phrase, at least for me, is this phrase right here, apart from the law. We get to be righteous. We get to be right with God. And we don't have to work for it. We don't have to labor to do what we know we never could. And that is fulfill the law completely. Now, the righteousness of God is, as I said, a key phrase in this passage. Uh, When you read righteousness of God, think righteousness from God. That clarifies it a little bit more. Righteousness from God. A righteousness that God gives. It's a righteousness not obtained, not earned, not generated in yourself, but a righteousness revealed and received from God. More on that when Paul calls it a gift. So one way to be righteous, be a doer of the law, be perfect. That's what we saw in chapters 1 to 3. For instance, chapter 2, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. There's one path to be right with God. Be a doer of the law. Be perfect. Obey the law perfectly. But if you've tried to fulfill the law, if you try to be a good person and a perfect person, you realize very quickly that you can't do it. Try not sinning for a day. How long can you go? If you've ever tried to use the the law of God, the commands of the Bible, as a ladder to reach up to heaven, you can climb it for a little bit. But everyone, sooner or later, is going to slip and fall down. But there is a second way, an alternative way to be righteous, to be right with God, and it is apart from the law. It's not by obeying the law. It is by receiving it from God, a righteousness from God. 
The second characteristic of God's righteousness, it is revealed in the Old Testament. That's found in the second part of verse 21. But now apart from but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So it says that the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law, although the law and prophets reveal it. So obeying the Old Testament is not the way to get righteous before God, but in reading the Old Testament, you learn how to be righteous before God. In reading the Old Testament, you see this righteousness of God, this righteousness from God. Think of the covenants in the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant spoke of universal blessing. Uh, yes, blessing on the Jewish nation and Abraham's descendants, but also blessing to the entire world. It spoke of God's initiative to bless and his initiative to bless unconditionally. And then in Abraham's life itself, Genesis 15, 6, it says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so even as early as Genesis, we have an example of Abraham who becomes righteous by believing in God. Uh, he obtains this righteousness apart from the law, but through believing in God. Think of the Mosaic covenant. All of the laws written down in Genesis to Deuteronomy and just reading law after law after law and seeing how this revealed that you can't be righteous. Try and obey all the laws in there and you will fail. The Mosaic law showed us that no one can be righteous, that you can try, but you will definitely fail. So righteousness will not come through obedience. That's hinted at strongly in the Mosaic covenant. And then think of the Davidic covenant, that there would be an everlasting king who would be a descendant of David who would actually be this righteousness for us. And then the new covenant, which was predicted in the Old Testament, righteousness will come not because you're perfect, not because you're sinless, but because God says in Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And so read the Old Testament and you will see this righteousness from God obtained apart from the law, through faith, where you are forgiven of your sins. The good news is old news. God has been giving us this way of righteousness since the beginning. The third characteristic of God's righteousness, it is received through faith in Christ it is received through faith in Christ. Verses 22 to 23. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This righteousness is received through faith by believing in Jesus Christ. Faith is what connects us to Jesus Jesus is the object of our faith. 
About six years ago, I went to a ring shop for the first time to buy an engagement ring with the intention of proposing to Linda. And I bought the biggest diamond I could afford on a seminarian's budget. It wasn't a lot. But that diamond was very important. Uh, I treasured that diamond. And truth be told, I, I bought it in Chinatown. And so when they set that diamond in the ring, I was very suspicious. And I asked them to set the, set the diamond in the, the ring in front of me where I could actually watch them because I was afraid that they might do something shady behind scenes and steal my diamond and replace it with an even smaller one or with a fake diamond or something like that. And, and once I received that ring, uh, I, I kind of kind of played with it a little bit. I uh, made sure that the diamond was set in there strong because if the diamond falls out, you don't really have a great ring. And, and so I, I kind of tried to pull it out a little bit, make sure it was sturdy. And so really it was, it was that clasp, four little prongs that connected the ring to the diamond. And that, those prongs, that clasp, and that strong grip is like our faith. And the diamond, like Jesus Christ, he is the treasure. And we embrace him. We grab onto him. We clasp onto him through our faith. That's the role that faith has in the Christian life. Now, notice the word all and how it connects verses 22 to 23. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See how, it, how that word connects verses 22 and 23. Righteousness is available for all for or because all have sinned. Now, there's no distinction, Paul says. That's what he's been saying. Jew and Gentile are both under sin. Yes, we have all fallen short. Yes, we are all condemned, but all have the opportunity to be righteous. All have the opportunity to place their faith in Jesus Christ, clasp onto him, grasp onto him for their righteousness. Uh, that verb sinned is in a Greek verb tense that is very general, just says that it happened. We sinned in general. And then Paul switches the verb tense when he says fall short. He uses a present tense verb. We continually fall short. Today, you are falling short of God's glory. Now, what does it mean to fall short of God's glory? Uh, we've seen this concept of the glory of God before, and I think the best way to interpret Romans 3.23 is with Romans 1.23. So if you want to flip back there, you can take a look. Romans 1.23 talks about and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
We saw the glory of God, but instead of worshiping and glorifying him, we chose the glory of something else, the glory of images of man and birds, glory of money, glory of sex, glory of grades and success, the glory of a job, the glory of being well thought of in other people's eyes, and most commonly and most centrally, the glory of ourselves. We said, I'll take that glory. I want that glory, and I reject the glory of God. So instead of worshiping him, instead of glorifying him, glorified ourselves. We're bad, but God saves bad people. All of us are bad, but all of us can be righteous through faith. Let's take a look at the fourth characteristic of the righteousness of God, and that is it's given as a gift. It's given as a gift. Verse 24 Got some really punchy, powerful statements in verse 24. You almost wish, Paul, slow down a little bit. You're going too fast. Explain that a little bit. But instead, he just kind of gives us staccato, boom, boom, boom. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, the first punchy word he uses that he doesn't explain very much, is justified. And with that word, he brings us into the courtroom. Whenever you see that word justified, imagine being in a courtroom. This is a legal term. Always think courtroom. What does it mean? What does it mean to be justified? Well, let me first tell you what it is not. To be justified is not being made perfect. It's not a change in your heart and mind where you are now going to do only what's right. So it's not that you're perfect and that you stop sinning. Uh, secondly, what justification is not, it's not that you work to a certain point of righteousness and then you are now justified. It's no plateau that you hit, and then you're justified. It's not that either. So what is it? Justification is that moment, that instantaneous moment when the sinner looks upon Jesus with the eyes of faith, and then the sinner is legally declared by God to be right before him. It is that moment where the sinner looks to Jesus with the eyes of faith. And then the sinner is legally declared by God righteous. God looks upon the sinner and says, right. Right with me. Uh, R.C. Sproul, who recently passed away, has had a big influence in my life. I've read several of his books. I've uh, heard him preach on several occasions. He's visited Grace Church a few times. And it seemed like every other lesson or sermon he would give, he would throw in some Latin phrase. And I think just as an ode to the late R.C. Sproul, who's now in heaven, um, 
enjoying worship of the king. I want to give you one of the most common ones that I heard from him, a Latin phrase. I'm not saying that I know Latin, I'm just copying R.C. Sproul. And this phrase, I think, is very helpful for understanding justification. Uh, the, the Latin phrase is simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. Justus with a J. Simul comes from, uh, well, it's the root word of simultaneous. So we're talking about two things happening at the same time. Justus with a J, justified. Simultaneously justified, et means and, peccator, sinner. Simultaneously justified and sinner. Simul justus et peccator. Hang out with any Christian for any period of time and you'll realize they're a sinner. Uh, that they're imperfect, uh, that they're going to fall and stumble, say something mean, do something wrong, dishonor the Lord in some way. They're a sinner. But they'll tell you by the grace of God, they're justified, that they are right with God and they're on their way to heaven. Uh, this is the glorious truth of justification that you don't have to work your way to God, that you don't have to do good works and then hit a certain level, then you're justified. But no, the moment you look on Jesus with the eyes of faith, boom, you're right with him. You're right with him. Look at that phrase, by his grace. When an employee works, he gets a paycheck. When an athlete wins a competition in the Winter Olympics, he gets a medal. When a UCLA student studies hard, he gets a good grade. But the one who cannot work, cannot win, and cannot achieve when that one is given something, that's grace. That's grace. You see, grace shows you very clearly the difference between earning and receiving. And just to, to heap another phrase on there, just for good measure, to, to, to clarify this even further, Paul says, as a gift. This is repetitive. After by his grace, you should get it. Got it. I don't earn it. I receive it. But just so you know, just to make sure, it's also a gift just to drive the point home. You get a present. A present is unearned and undeserved. It's given at no cost and no price. Then Paul says, through the redemption. Redemption. And when you hear redemption, you think it's a very Christian kind of word. But originally, it actually spoke of commerce and the marketplace. And so Paul is now transporting us from the courtroom to the marketplace where we see something on sale that would be very strange to us in modern times. On sale in this marketplace are humans, slaves, 
And during this time, people would purchase slaves for a great sum of money. Uh, getting human labor and ownership of a person was extremely expensive. And oftentimes, uh, a family member or a loved one would, would come to the marketplace after saving for a long time and purchase the freedom of that slave, of, of their brother, uh, of their son, of the one that they love. And that's the picture here, being purchased from slavery so that you might go free. And as much as purchasing a slave cost, purchasing our salvation, our freedom, our spiritual freedom was even more costly, infinitely costly. It cost the blood of the Son of Jesus Christ. After all, he said that he came to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is the payment for our freedom. You know, if a, if a reporter for a newspaper went up to people of different religions and asked them about their beliefs, he would get different answers. And I think it would go something like this. The reporter comes and sticks a microphone in front of the Orthodox Jew's face and says, or asks the question, where are you going after you die? And how do you know? Going to paradise because I'm a good person, uh, because I fulfill God's commandments because I'm kind to my neighbor. Reporter now sticks a microphone in front of the Muslim's face. Where are you going after you die and how do you know? Going to paradise because I'm a good person. Because I have kept the commandments of the Quran, because I pray five times a day, because I've taken the pilgrimages, uh, because I have given alms to those who are poor. Reporter sticks the microphone in front of a Catholic's face. Says, where are you going after you die and how do you know? Going to heaven. Because I have kept the sacraments. Because I have said the Hail Marys. Because I go to confession. Because I go to mass. The reporter now sticks the microphone in front of the Christian's face. Where are you going after you die? And how do you know? I'm going to heaven. How do you know? Well, well I'm a wicked person. I'm, I'm a sinner. I, I know what God has said in his word, and I, I don't obey it all the time. I'm, I'm hurtful to other people. I got all kinds of pride in my heart. Uh, I think horrible thoughts that I would be ashamed to share. And the reporter goes, whoa, 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 whoa. What? What's going on here? You just said you, you think you're going to heaven. And the Christian says, let me, let me continue. But I've been shown grace. I've been given a gift. 
I believe in Jesus Christ, who is my righteousness, who died as a substitute for me, so that he takes on my sin and is punished for it, and I get his righteousness. And God sees me clothed in the righteousness of my Savior and declares me to be right. That's the difference between what we believe and what other religions believe. For the first three, you just have to ask the question, how good do you have to be? How do you know? What kind of assurance do you have? How do you, how do you know you've hit the mark that you're good enough? Like, where, where's the cutoff? And I've asked several of my friends and many people as I've gone fishing and I haven't had a satisfactory answer yet. How do you know you're good enough? But this is the good news of the gospel. It tells us that you could never be good enough. You could never fully obey the law, but Jesus did it for you. And he gives you his righteousness and all you must do is believe, trust in him. Now the fifth characteristic of the righteousness of God, it is demonstrated at the cross. Verses 25 to 26. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice this emphasis in these verses on public display. Verse 25, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation. Verse 25 also, this was to show God's righteousness. And then verse 26, you have the word show again. It was to show his righteousness. This is the righteousness of God being demonstrated publicly, displayed, billboarded, placarded for all to see. And one thing he showcased in giving his righteousness is propitiation. Propitiation is one of the most important words when it comes to understanding the Christian faith. And yet if I passed around little slips of paper and asked you guys to write down a definition of propitiation, I think most of you would not be able to give one. And so let me just give you a simple definition of propitiation, uh, a way that I like to think of it. And that is wrath quencher. Wrath dash quencher. Jesus, as our propitiation, quenches God's wrath, removes God's wrath, pours cold water on the fire of God's wrath. Notice how this concept of propitiation is closely tied with the phrase by his blood. This wrath quenching is only possible by his blood, that is by his death. Jesus had to die in order to take away God's wrath. And so we always say that we're saved, right? We want salvation. When we go evangelizing, do you want salvation? Because I'm saved and I want you to be saved. Saved from what? What are you saved from? 
You want to know what you're saved from? You're saved from the wrath of God. You're saved from God himself. You're saved by God from God. Because if you've read the first part of Romans, you know that God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness and you know that you are ungodly. But Jesus is that wrath quencher. He is the wrath absorber. Imagine standing before a a dam 1,000 feet high. Millions of gallons behind this dam. And the dam cracks. The dam breaks. And the water comes crashing down on you. But just before it does, at your feet, the ground opens. Cracks open and the water is sucked down and not a drop falls upon you and you are saved. This is the wrath quenching of Jesus Christ. Not a drop of the wrath falls upon you. He drinks the entire cup. He takes it all on his own. I want to give you two thinking questions as we round out our discussion of verses 25 and 26. Two questions. How much does it matter that God is fair? And secondly, how much does it matter that God forgives? Well, it matters a lot that God forgives because I got some sin and I would be very happy if God forgives. In fact, my eternity is staked upon whether God forgives or not. So it is very important that God forgives. How important then is it that God is fair? Well, that's very important as well. Because if my God is not fair, then he's no God at all. We have an instinctive love of justice. Uh, When the referee misses a call, get angry at him. When a judge exonerates a guilty criminal, you say, that's not fair. And so if God is a judge who just lets guilty people go free, sweep sin under the rug, that's not good either. So then let me ask you this. If you had to choose one, which one would you choose? God is forgiving or God is fair? You only get one. Which one do you choose? Praise be to God that we don't have to choose because he is both. As this text says, he is the just and the justifier of those who believe. Let's take a look at that. Verse 25. Verse 25 is a problem. because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Here's the problem. God let sin go in the Old Testament. He passed over sin. He didn't strike sinners dead on the spot and send them to hell. Abraham was a liar. He didn't trust God with his plan and he took matters into his own hands by committing adultery with Hagar, his maidservant, 
And yet he was not struck dead on the spot. Instead, he was allowed to live on. And when he finally did die, he went to heaven. Jacob, his grandson, was a deceiver. Tricked his dad, Isaac. Tricked his brother. Stole the birthright. And yet, he was not struck dead on the spot. He was allowed to live on. And when he finally did die, he went to heaven. King David was an adulterer and a murderer and showed great pride in his heart later in his life by taking the census. Look at my kingdom. Look how many men I have. And yet he was allowed to live on instead of being struck dead on the spot. And when he finally did die, he went to heaven. God let their sin go. That's a problem. Passing over this sin, God's forbearance and patience, as it says here, is a problem. A lot of times we have this issue. Why does God send people to hell? And that's, a, that's an issue that needs to be resolved in and of itself. But the bigger problem here, the bigger problem in the Old Testament is not how, how can God send people to hell, but how can God send people to heaven? Because this calls into question God's justice, his fairness. God, you're letting sin go. What kind of judge are you? How can God let sin go unpunished? The answer is, is demonstrated, billboarded, displayed for all to see at Calvary, at the cross. Because it's at the cross that God punished sin. The sins of Abraham, the sins of Jacob, the sins of David in his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus died in the place of, of these sinners. Jesus died as their substitute. The penalty for their sin was placed on his shoulders and paid in full. The price to quench the wrath of God against all of the Old Testament saints' sins was placed on Jesus and he drank it all. He quenched it. He paid it in full. And so this is the beauty of this whole thing, the beauty of the gospel. He can be just and the justifier he is just. Don't you dare call into question the justice of God because he punishes sin. He punished it at the cross. God so loved the world that he slaughtered his son for the sins of others. And so the sin, the penalty, Jesus paid it all. It's paid. It's done. But this also allows God to be the justifier. Don't you dare call into question his grace. Because in slaughtering his son, he is able to declare sinners righteous. Because sinners transfer their sin over to Christ. Christ gives them their, his righteousness 
They're clean. They're clothed in Christ's robes of righteousness. And God declares them right. Right with me. And so he is able to be just and the justifier. Only in the cross. At the cross, justice and mercy kiss, fairness and forgiveness meet. This is one of my favorite songs, Grace and Peace, and my favorite verse in this song. Grace and peace, oh, how can this be? The matchless king of all paid the blood price for me. Slaughtered lamb, what atonement you bring. The vilest sinner's heart can be cleansed, can be free. Oh, what an amazing mystery. What an amazing mystery that your grace has come to me. It's amazing that although all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all can be right with God through faith. But knowing my own life, my own sin, the most amazing thing, it's not that Jesus died for sinners, but that he would die for me.